Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Life's always a little bit more interesting when Eloise and I are both serving up here and the girls are here. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. But we're grateful uh, that we have kids in our midst. So I'd love to pray, with them, pray, pray for them and for our time together uh, just as we jump into the message today. Loving and gracious God, we thank you for the young people in our midst, for the children and the families that bring an increased level of enthusiasm and vitality and, to be honest, a little bit of chaos into our life and midst as a church community. But Lord, we are grateful for them because in them we see the very seeds of faith that were planted in us as, as young people, many of us. We see in them our starting point as followers of Jesus. So Lord, help us as a church to disciple them. Help us as families to disciple them well. And we thank you and praise you for the leaders that do such an incredible job leading them on a Sunday morning. And Lord, as we open your word and explore what it is you have for us this morning, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. And we declare that all glory and honor is yours this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series called Starting Point. And the basic premise of this series is that many of us had a starting point, a faith framework that we were given as young people. Someone taught us something about God or something about the fact that God wasn't real or something about our concept of faith at some point in our life. Usually for many of us, it was early on. Things to believe about God or, or that there is no God. And what we've been talking about in this series is that everything has a starting point and our faith has a starting point. And as a kid that, or as a child, our framework for faith, that starting point of faith, was good. We believed in a bunch of cool things. We believed in the tooth fairy. We believed in Santa Claus. We believed in the Easter Bunny. We believed in Jesus. All equally as young children. And, and that's cool because there's a sense of wonder and a sense of mystery about the world when we are children. But when we grow up, we encounter a complexity in life. We begin to start asking adult questions around issues of faith. What do we do with suffering? What do we do with injustice? How can it be a God in what seems to be a bad world? Who has the ultimate say in the morality of our world? And what we discover is that those childhood answers around faith and the Bible stories that we were taught become insufficient in answering the questions of faith as an adult. And so we've been journeying in this series about trying to figure out what do we do with that? And for some of you, in your, in your journey of faith, most of us, we have two responses when we encounter challenges in our faith. 
We press in and we ignore the questions and just live out a life of faith through ignorance. Or for so many of us, we actually just tap out of faith altogether and we say, look, I cannot, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how God fits into all of this. And so I'm just not going to bother. Can anyone relate to either of those feelings at times? So in this series, we're wiping the slate clean. And we're asking the question, what if we began with a new starting point, an adult starting point? Where would we begin if we were to answer the adult questions of faith? And now we're in part four of that, so we're nearly half, we're about, by the time I'm finished speaking this morning, we're going to be halfway through the series. So if you've missed any of them, please go back and watch them, because there's a lot of context that needs to be there, and and those sermons are going to be there as long as there's an internet, and so make sure you check up on YouTube or on our podcast, or you can head straight to our website, gawleyuniting.org.au, and you can find it all there. But I'll give you a quick recap. What I've introduced in the first week is that the Bible says was not the starting point for the earliest followers of Jesus. And so the Bible says is not an adequate starting point for us. Instead, the question ought be, who do we believe that Jesus is? That's the question, because it's what the first century church wrestled with, and it's what we need to wrestle with as we begin our journey of faith. And then we explored the idea of sins versus mistakes. What do we do with that? offensive word called sin. And we recognize that we, recognizing that we are sinners leads to restoration, not to condemnation. It's, Jesus never talked about sin as a way of condemning us. He just pointed to a reality that was already true in us. But then He paved a way for us to find restoration with God, not condemnation before God. But then we continued last week that God chose a starting point in humanity to restart the journey of restoration. And He chose a man called Abraham. And when sin made a mess of the world, God stepped in and created a new starting point. And so today I want to talk about something that we have all wrestled with on some level when it comes to religion and when it comes to faith. And that's the role of rules. Anyone ever had rules? in the journey of faith, one or two things you had to do, shouldn't do. Rules are everywhere in the context of faith. And so what we're going to talk about is how do rules fit into that. And if we look, every religion has rules. Every religion in the world that you will encounter has a set of rules that you have to live by. And the thing about every religion is it has a rule maker. And that rule maker never gets to be us, does it? No. Sometimes we wish we could be the rule maker, but that's just not how it works. So we end up receiving a set of rules from a being that is more significant than us, or a person that's more significant than us, and those rules are the things that we get, we have to live out. So if we look across different religions in the world, we've got Christianity, which most would say that the rules are the Sermon on the Mount. We've got Judaism, so the Jewish, uh, Jewish faith has the Ten Commandments, which we're going to hear a little bit more about that later. You've got Islam, has the five pillars. Buddhism has the five precepts. Hinduism has ten disciplines. And Jediism, so being a follower of the Force. You know Jedi, lightsabers, Star Wars, George Lucas, all of that. Has the 21 maxims. By the way, just as a side note, the High Court in UK ruled that it wasn't, didn't count as a religion. 
So even though they, it was, it, they, they organized to have enough people on the census to tick other religion and write Jedi, it didn't quite work out for them. Never mind. So every religion has a set of rules. But because I'm a, I'm a pastor in a Christian church, I'm not going to criticize any of the other religions. I'm going to poke fun at ours. I'm going to poke fun at Christianity. Because what we managed to do is we found a way within the faith tradition that believed that Jesus is the Son of God, we, found different, we, we formed different faith traditions, which we call denominations. Baptists and Lutherans, Presbyterians, Uniting, Uniting Church, which is us, Methodists, one of the churches we came from, Salvation Army. And each one of those Christian denominations has their own set of rules. Absolutely. And some denominations believe that some others don't have enough rules. And some denominations believe other churches have too many rules. And so we sort of find ourselves in this, what's with all the rules? What do, what do we do with this? How, do we, how does all of these rules, this nebulous concept of rules, fit into our personal journey of faith? And where does God fit into all of that? And how do we know? how it all works out. And they seem to be a big part of religion. And if we're honest, for some of you, it's why you left religion behind. For some of you, maybe those of you joining us online, you haven't stepped into a church because of all the rules. Stuff that you just couldn't bear to live up to, you didn't understand why it was all there, it didn't make a lot of sense, it felt dishonoring. Whatever your journey might have been, so many of us have a journey of the rules actually clashing with the rules a bit in the Christian church. And you might be here because you just like our set of rules more than you like another church's set of rules, I don't know. Either way, however you got here, I'm glad you're here. And so the question I'm asking this morning is, what's the connection between us, between God and between the rules. How does it all fit together? So let's talk about rules. And I want to begin our conversation this morning with a basic premise of which I'm going to build everything else. And that premise is this. Rules always assume a relationship. Rules always assume that there is a relationship. Whenever that you or I are accountable to a set of rules... It assumes that there is a relationship dynamic there of some form to which you adhere or that you are a part of. There's lots of different types of relationships. But you think about it, it's like, I can't, I, or I, as a parent, I make rules for my children. They sometimes abide by them and sometimes they wander around on stage during church. But the challenging thing is that, so I make the rules for my kids, but then we've got a neighbor who has kids. But the thing about that is I, don't, I can't go over to their house and give their kid rules, can I? Why? Because there's no relationship there. In the same way that we have a dog, and also he sometimes does as he is told. But we also have a neighbor that has dogs. And those dogs never shut up. But I don't have any, I've got, there's no role, there's nothing I can do to go to their house and discipline those dogs on their behalf. Why? Because it's not my right. Why? Because we don't have a relationship. And so rules 
always assume some form of relationship. We exist in a society. We have a relationship with our government as citizens. And through that relationship, we adhere to the rules most of the time. And to help us sort of frame this a little bit, I've got three categories of rules which I think help us understand this discussion a little bit more and the way it fits in with faith. And so here's three models of rule-type relationship. The first one is the family model. You and I, we were born into a family. And that family formed the basis for the relationship in which we found the rules. I've talked about that with my daughters. Our parents are the ones, and our grandparents are the ones who establish the rules. Why? Because they are in relationship with us. And those rules exist not so that we can enter the family. Those rules exist. Why? Because we're already a part of the family. Don't miss that. We don't abide by the rules to get into the family. We abide by the rules, or we have rules because we are part of the family already. And those rules form part of the framework of your household until you move out or whatever. And as I said, parents only set rules for their kids, not their neighbor's kids. We've all met kids we'd like to set rules for. So there might be some in, you might like to set rules for my kids, but you're never going to come and tell the pastor that, but that's, it is what it is. But we don't, you can't do that because they're not your kids. But rules, there are rules for members of the family, but the rules don't make you a part of the family. You're already in. So that's the first one, the family model. The second one is the club or the employee model of, of relationship. And this is that idea where here's a set of rules. You agree to do those rules and you can be a part of our club. You ever signed up to be like a, a part of a sporting club or a, a probus club or, or even just to be employed somewhere? You have an employee code of conduct, yes? If you rocked up to your interview and they gave you the code of conduct and you went, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. Do you reckon you're going to get a job there? Don't think so. You sign up for a probus club and you say, well, and it, you know, whatever those rules look like, you get given a set of rules, you adhere to the set of rules, or you promise to, and then you are in. You then form the relationship. The rules actually preclude. They come before, if that's the right word, before the relationship. And by promising to or by adhering to the relationship, then you get to get in to the club. And if you break the rules, you're out. That's how the club or the, the relationship or sorry, the employee model works. So the rules are what you need to do to begin the relationship. That's the second one. The third one is the neighborhood model. Anyone live in a neighborhood? Anyone got neighbors? Do you like those neighbors? Do you like all of your neighbors? Now, I'm not just talking about the ones just around you. I'm talking about the ones down the street, the noisy house that's, that's three doors down or whatever. No, you don't all like your neighbors. Of course we don't. We love to think we would. But the thing about the neighborhood model of relationship is that you don't get to meet your neighbors generally before you move into the suburb, do you? You check out the house, you check out the front yards of the houses around you, and if everything's fit and right, you buy the house, and then you move in. But your neighbors 
never get a say as to whether you're in or whether you're out because you're part of the neighborhood. And so a relationship forms. And have you ever been a part of one of those neighborhoods where there's just some unwritten rules around the place? Like, make sure your dog doesn't bark past 10 p.m. Or make sure that you've mowed your front lawn at least once a year. Get rid of the cars that are on blocks at the front of your house. Sorry, bro. <laughs> For all the car enth- enthusiasts here. <laughs> Just, you know what I mean? No matter which neighborhood you're a part of, there are rules that you need to live by. But the thing about it is, no one tells you what they are. And the only way that you ever know if you're abiding by the rules or not is whether you get the passive-aggressive note in your mailbox or not. Which all it's got is like a... It's got the... Um, like a dog training pamphlet of a local local dog obedience. Is your dog barking? Consider this in your letterbox. Or a, a local salvage yard into your letterbox. Or a skip bin distributor in your letterbox. And the only way you know if you're a part of the rules or if you're abiding by the rules or not is this unwritten sort of whatever. You never know if you're in or if you're out, you never know if you're accepted or if you're not. And there's nowhere to know what the rules are. And so if we were to put these categories of the family model, the club model, and the neighborhood model over the context of religion, we can see how this becomes confusing. When it comes to us and God, which one is it? Are we a part of God? Are we in relationship with God no matter what, and that's how the rules come? Uh, do we need to obey the rules, and then God accepts us enough if we get a C-plus average? What does God expect of me? When am I in? When am I out? And how am I supposed to know? Or is it just that you roll through life, and assuming you don't get too many passive-aggressive moments in your life from God, at some point you'll figure out when all of it is said and done as to whether God approved of you or not. Which one is it? How does it all fit together? Has anyone ever wondered? Do you have, a, do you have one of those which you would adhere to more, that you, your brain sort of trends towards? It's an interesting question to consider. So to explore this question, I want to take us back to nearly the oldest set of rules that exists in ancient literature. It's the oldest that connects with God. It's a well doc. It's the most, by far, by far, the most well documented set of rules that the world has ever known, and it found its way into Jewish, Christian, and Islamic lit- literature. It became holy and righteous in all of those. Do you know which one it is? The Ten Commandments. Do you know them all? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Something about respecting our parents. Uh, don't have any other... Yet We start to get a little bit lost sometimes. I'm sure some of you that are way holier than me can get all of them right. And just like, bam, bam, bam. Come on, Josh, I thought you were our pastor. And of course, I know more than those three. But the Ten Commandments, they were given, they were recorded in ancient history in around, around 1446 B.C nearly 1,500 years before the life of Jesus. 
They were given to a man called Moses by God. He went up on a mountaintop. And the funny thing about the Ten Commandments is that very, very few people actually know all ten of them, but we've covered that. The second thing that I'd love to know is, do you know where they are in the Bible? Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter... Oh, it's up on the screen. Come on. Some of you didn't even notice. You were so busy focused here. I get it. Exodus chapter 20 is where we find them. So whenever someone asks you, where are the Ten Commandments, you can say, Exodus chapter 20. See, who says you don't learn anything in church? There you go. But before we go any further, I need to tell you how we got to this moment with Moses. Last week, we heard about Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise by God, a promise that he would be made a great nation. Now, Abraham didn't have any sons, but he still trusted God, and that trust was reckoned to him as righteousness, as Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 12. But then years pass, nothing's happening, and that promise still lingers there, and, and Abraham doesn't know what to do with that. And his wife Sarah comes to see him, and, and they try and figure this out, and Sarah has a suggestion. She says, why don't you go sleep with my head slave, Hagar, because, you know, maybe you, you can father some a nation through her instead, because I, um, it's not working with us, so whatever. And so he does. I don't know how much convincing was taken, but we'll leave that on the table for another day. But they have a child, and that child's name is Ishmael. And Ishmael goes on and becomes, part, becomes the son of blessing for the Muslim religion, for the Islamic faith. The prophet Muhammad comes along about 600 uh, years after Jesus' life and ministry, and he fits it all together and decides that the prophet, uh, that, that Ishmael was the son of blessing from which the nation would be given. But Abraham and Sarah ultimately have another child, a child through the true bloodline of the two that were promised, and his name is Isaac. And Isaac becomes a father of Jacob. And Jacob has a number of sons, the 12 sons, which we, become, which we start to recognize as the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes, what happens is well, one, of, one of the sons, of Jacob's sons, named Joseph, gets treated poorly by his brothers, gets thrown in a pit, gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, interprets some dreams of the Pharaoh, becomes prime minister after a delay in prison, becomes prime minister... Ultimately, all of his brothers and Jacob all get invited to Egypt to prosper and to be present there. And what happens, they multiply like rabbits because they're living under the blessing. And as time progresses, the Egyptians sort of turn to Pharaoh and they're like, hang on, this is not working out. These Israelites are everywhere. And we don't know what to do. Soon gonna, there's going to be more of them than us, and, and we're going to lose control of our nation. And so they decree, all right, we're going to enslave these Israelites. And so they do. They subject them to slavery. They force them to make, um, make bricks and, and all that sort of stuff. And so you've got this entire nation of Israel in slavery. And they stay in slavery for 400 years. 400 years. This building has been here 152 
years. So two and a half times as long as this building has been standing here, if my maths is right, is how long they were in slavery. And the kids would sit down, I can imagine this, the kids would sit down with some of the parents and they'd hear the stories of Abraham and they'd hear the stories of the promise that they are the chosen nation of God and they're looking around and they're like, excuse me, we're slaves. What gives? Where's the promise? Yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. God's going to be faithful. For 400 years, they lose heart. And then suddenly, a man Moses comes onto the scene. And we all know the story. He's called in the wilderness. And he goes to Pharaoh. And what does he say? Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Correct. Well done. And there's a bit of to and fro. And eventually God decides to make a mockery of every single um, Egyptian god. And in doing so, he sends plague after plague after plague after plague. And eventually Pharaoh says, all right, enough. Go. Get out of here. We've had enough of this. Take what you want and go. And three weeks later, we find a nation that's been slaves for as long as any one of them has known. They find themselves out in the wilderness. And they don't know what to do. And Moses goes up on the top of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he receives a set of rules. Ten commandments is part of it. And as as this Israelite nation experiences their first taste of freedom... The question becomes, how are we meant to behave as God's people? And so the Ten Commandments come. Are we all caught up? Sweet. And as we begin, let's look at this, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is what happened when Moses came down and declared these to the people. And God spoke all of these words. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Hang on a second. God, we, you're telling us that you're our God. Yeah. And we haven't done anything to, we haven't obeyed any rules, we haven't signed anything, but you're telling us that, that you're our God? Yes. That you brought us out of the land of Egypt, not because of anything we've done, but because, because you're our God. We're in relationship, yes. Big says, because before anything else, God says to them, before I give you the rules, I need you to know that you're mine and I'm yours. Before I give you the rules, we are in a relationship. He continues in verse 3. Here's the first one. The first of the rules. Some of you knew this one. I heard it from Pam for sure and a couple of others. You shall have no other gods besides me. Rule number one. To which, of course, they're going to say, are you kidding me? For 400 years we've been living in Egypt and those you just made a mockery of all of their gods. So, of course, you're going to be God number one. Put a check mark in that box. 
And what we find really interesting in this moment. And the thing that we need to recognize as a part of this narrative is that when the Israelite people came out of Egypt, God already decided that they were in relationship. And so when God handed down the rules, the rules were not a condition of the relationship. The rules were a confirmation of the relationship. So the Ten Commandments, as they were given, were not a condition of the relationship. They were confirmation of the relationship. The first laws, the first laws that are recorded in ancient Scripture, the first laws that exist anywhere that connect humanity with God, the most recorded laws anywhere, suggest... That God chose that the rules, the laws, that the ways that we were meant to live our life that honored God were a confirmation of relationship, not a condition. They're a way to live under God as a people set apart, not as a people to become set apart. We were already chosen. And what's really interesting is that after the five books of the first five books of the Bible. We get to the prophets. And if you've read any of the prophets, it's really interesting because they exist for one reason. All of, the, all of the testimonies of the prophets. They exist for one reason. To point Israel back to God. For any of you that have done parenting, which is most of us, who've certainly seen it done, when a child does, does, does what we don't want them to do, what do you say? One, two... Most dads go two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths, three. All right, you're in timeout. Anyone familiar with that one? As we look through the prophets, we read the narrative. That is exactly what's happening. The Israelite nation veers off course from the rules that they have been given. And a prophet comes along and says, one, two, three. All right, Babylon. One, two, three. All right, Assyria. One, two, three. All right, you're not entering the land because all of you have sinned and fallen short. Over and over and over again. But the role of the prophets wasn't to say to the nation, You need to live right so that God will love you. Their role was to remind the nation of Israel, God loves you. So act like it. God loves you and out of gratitude, embrace it. And it's a reminder that I'm not giving up on you. I chose you to be my people before I ever gave you the rules. And so that tells us that God chose the family model as a relationship for rules. That the relationship would precede the rules. And the history of Israel is that God didn't choose the club model. He chose the family model. So the question is, is that how He treats you and me? Does that still apply to us? Because Josh 
these rules are 15, well, three and a half thousand years old now. So do they still apply? Well, what we realize when we look closely is that the rules are the confirmation, not the condition for a relationship. And if that's true, it's staggering. It says an awful lot about the expansive love and grace of God, that like a loving parent with infinite patience, He disciplines us not to pay us back, but to bring us back into relationship. That's what it means. But is that story unique to Israel, or does it apply to us? Does God play favorites? Does it apply to Gawley Uniting Church? Does it apply to my life? But what we discover, we're going to take a couple of minutes to look even closer and discover one thing that's absolutely certain, that this wasn't about Israel. This was about the world. Because if we open to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we read the promise we heard last week. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, says the Lord to Abraham. And here it is, all peoples will, on the earth, will be blessed through you. So this is the promise that Abraham and the nation of Israel are living in, that all the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. But then we look further. We read a prophet, a prophecy from Isaiah. And he reflects, hearing the word from God, he says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept? I will also make you, talking to Israel, God says, I will also make you a light, not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles, for every other nation on earth, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So we have a promise to Abraham that says, all the nations will be blessed. And then we have a promise to the nation in exile that says, all the nations, not just you, but everyone else, is going to be blessed by what I'm going to do through you. It's not about you, but it's going to, you are the signpost for what I'm going to do in the world. And then we shouldn't be surprised that about 1,500 years after the law is given, a man is born into, na- into the nation of Israel, and his name is called Jesus, and he comes from Nazareth. And what does he do? before he asks anyone to do anything, before he teaches anything, before the Sermon on the Mount, before requiring anyone to live the right ways, he turns nature upside down. He heals the sick. He commands the wind. He stops storms. He does things that no one can imagine. The closest to him are often terrified by his power. But he says, trust me. That was his message, trust me. And it was a message that he declared before he ever gave anyone the rules to live by. Before he ever interpreted the Old Testament law into the New Testament context. He said, trust me. Because for Jesus, it was all about relationship before it was about the rules. 
So it began with faith. Should we be surprised that Jesus' message was one of salvation through faith, not through works? Because the rules, they come later. Paul writes it like this. He says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not by works, so that none of you can boast about it. It is a free gift of God, not of yourselves, not by works, so that we cannot boast. Our salvation, friends, if I boil it down, doesn't come from us living by the rules. Our salvation comes from the relationship. When we trust God, it begins. And we are in. And there's nothing we can do to be out if we continue to trust, regardless of how we choose to live our life. Whether we abide by the rules or not, God says those rules are the best for your life. They are what bring out a life of fullness and love and grace and richness like nothing you've ever experienced and that you can find anywhere else. But those rules don't mean that I love you. I love you. So please live by the rules. John 1 writes it this way. Yet all who did receive him, and those who believed, also the word there is trust, in his name, he gave right to become children of God. Doesn't say anything in there about the rules. Just to become children of God. So what's our starting point? I feel like I've labored it, and I feel like you got it. The starting point for our faith when it comes to the rules is recognizing that the rules follow the relationship, not the other way around. So whenever you feel like you're not good enough to be here, whenever you feel like you're falling short, whenever you feel like you're not worthy of God's love, I've got to tell you, the core truth that you need to understand as we re-begin our faith, as we choose a new starting point as an adult, is that God's love for you has nothing to do with how good you are and everything to do with the fact that you are God's and that's where it begins. The rules follow the relationship. So as you go into this week, when you ask a question, I'll invite the band to come back up as we get ready for our final song. We're going to sing about the King of Kings. Jesus, the one that I've spoken about. The one who came and fulfilled the law and the prophets and gave his life for you and for me that we could find a life of fullness in the name of Jesus. That we could not live by the rules as a way of getting with good with God. But instead, the rules would be a way of us to discover the best life that God has in store for us. As we explore that, as you think about that, as we begin, as we use that as the starting point for our faith once again, I want you to consider, what does religion look like for you? This idea of religion look like for you? Is it come along and live in the right ways? Or is it experiencing embracing the love that God has for you? Because the truth is the love came first. And the love will always come first. And every moment that we forget it, 
Our relationship with God suffers. Not because He loves us any less, but we've forgotten that He does. So may you this week embrace the love of God, not the law. And from that love, discover the rhythm, the unforced rhythms of grace that God has for you by living the way He calls you to in the world. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it speaks to us. Lord, as we sing in this moment, as we declare you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your extraordinary love. Remind us of it when we struggle. Help us to forget the rules to start with and choose to the relationship because Lord that's what you have for us and that's where you want us to begin in Jesus name we pray Amen well thanks once again for joining us if this service has been a blessing to you why not share it with someone you know or better yet post it on your social feed because you never know how God might use what you share to bless someone you didn't even know needed it special thank you if you contribute towards making this ministry possible, we are so grateful. If you'd like to help, head to gawleyuniting.org.au and follow the links to begin giving. God bless you and we'll see you next time.